So I'd like to open this morning with a question, um, and that is, what makes you and all your uniqueness and all your particularity you? What makes you you? I'm asking about your identity. What are those things that shape you and make you the person that you are? Are you content with that identity? Or is it a source of constant struggle, something you have to try to reconcile yourself to? So if you had one paragraph to state it, to put it down in words, what would you include? What would you not include? Now, naturally, those are difficult questions to answer because they take us to the heart of our self-understanding and things don't always make sense down there. Now, human identity, what we're talking about, what I'm asking you about, is made up of a number of things. It would be nearly impossible to narrow your identity down to one thing alone. Identity is constituted by many things like family or culture, ethnicity, religion, values, your appearance, your talents, your choices, and etc., and etc., All these things come together into one big mix to make you, you. And while others share certain similarities, no one shares your exact mix, right? No one is exactly like you. And, of course, identity is a hot topic these days. And everyone seems to be having an identity crisis, We're encouraged to be our true selves, right? To craft our most authentic identity. But it turns out that that's quite a burden. Everything from the most basic interests to even biological sex is up for grabs. Identity is not something given. It's not something that you receive, the culture will tell us, but something that's created. So choices, choices, choices. Who are you going to be? But the question that we want to ask this morning is, what does Christianity have to say about human identity? What does Christianity have to say about human identity, who you and I are? I want to share with you something that's called union with Christ. Something that's called union with Christ. In the scriptures, it's known by the small but conspicuous phrase, in Christ. More than any other way, that is how believers are. That's how believers are identified. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Galatians chapter 3. There is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. So who am I? Who are you? The scriptures would tell us that you are in Christ. So we're about to come to the heart of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And as we just read, it's dense and it's difficult. And even more so, if you don't understand what it means to be in Christ. In Christ, the apostle says, you have been made complete. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You have been buried with him in baptism, 
raised with him through faith, made alive together with him. You have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. And on and on it goes throughout the rest of the letter. All that Paul has to say here, all that he's trying to communicate to us, revolves around this great theme that we are, as believers in Christ, in him. We are in Christ. So I want to catch everyone up to speed. We're going to take a few steps back and get a running start at this passage. First, by considering our union with Christ this morning, and then considering the Lord's Supper and baptism in the following weeks as the supreme expressions of our union with Him. And so I want to consider then what it means to be in Christ this morning along three lines. Along three lines. Along the lines of past, present, and future. And we'll start with the past. So what does Christianity have to say about human identity? Well, the first thing we can say is that Christ is not content to have a slice of the pie, so to speak. He does not want to be a part of our identity, quarantined from the rest of the things that make us who we are. Rather, He pushes down our barriers, and he intrudes on all aspects of our identity. In other words, he's not content to occupy some portion of our lives labeled religion and spirituality. He seeks to occupy it all, to plant his flag atop every aspect of human life. And for the most part, right, as Christians, as those who want to do the will of God... We're ready to go along with that project. Right? We hand over the keys to the various chambers of our identity. Our sexuality, our choices, our finances, our politics. We put them in Jesus' hands and say, Thy will be done. But one chamber of human identity is more resistant than the rest. And that is our memory. Our memory. As it turns out, memory is a very big part of our identity, a very big part of what makes us who we are. It kind of holds together our identity, we might say. In my own life, I remember my childhood growing up on 19 Bennett Road with my brothers and sisters. I remember my teenage misadventures. I remember my conversion sitting with my back against the dresser crying because the Lord was doing something in my life. I remember my wedding day. I remember the first sermon preached here at this church. These memories, so long as I hold them, shape me and they define who I am, just as your memories, those same events in your life, do for you. Time wants to disintegrate your identity. It wants to section you off and keep you at discrete points in time. But memory is a thing that holds it all together, that traverses past and brings it into the present and makes you one person. So the question I want to ask then is, how do you view your past? How do you view your memory, all the things that are contained in that vast storehouse? How do you relate to it? Certainly, there are moments that you can look back on with 
joy and gratitude. Right, events that are just, you never want to forget them. And very likely there are other moments that you want to forget altogether, that you at all costs do not want to remember, but they stay fixed there at the forefront of your mind. So is memory something that you are reconciled to, right? Is your past something that you've made peace with, or is it an ongoing source of discomfort? Now, whatever that answer is, right, wherever you find yourself in relation to your memory, it affects the present. It affects how you live now. I often think of this in relation to sports, the effect that memory has on the present. It can help or it can hinder. One player in that crucial moment, remembers their success. And so in that moment, they're free to play unhindered. That there's nothing kind of hampering them from just being in the moment. While others, they remember their past failure. Right? They remember lost tie breaks and close matches, and so they tighten up in that moment. Memory becomes mental baggage, and scar tissue is accumulated that hinders peak performance in the present. And just so in our lives, memory can help or it can harm. And I'm inclined to think that it's more harmful in most cases because we come to define ourselves, right? Who we are by our past experiences. I am, in other words, what was done to me. I am the terrible decisions that I've made in my life, or I am uh, this history of mediocrity and disappointment. Such memories then determine our present. They write the script that we act out because, again, memory determines our identity. Now, something like this is tragically common in sexual abuse victims one becomes trapped in their traumatic memory, forced into thinking this is who they are, and it shapes the rest of their lives, their choices and actions. And so it goes. Our present is determined by our past. I am my repeated failures, one person thinks, and so he's bound to carrying out that identity. I am what happened to me in this relationship, another thinks, so she cannot help but be that person. Hence, a crucial feature of what it, a crucial feature rather of becoming who we are in Christ, of growing up into the person he wants to be, is letting him into our memory. We hand over to Christ not only our present and future, but also our past. Christ is not content to have you from here on out, so to speak. He wants even who you were, even what you did back then before you had a thought of him. His lordship over your life, over my life, extends even to the deepest reaches of your memory. He wants it all. He wants to have his way even there. And unless we hand over the keys to the chamber of our memory and let Christ search our past, we will remain bound to it in the present. We will walk with a limp as it were, shackled to what was. But it doesn't have to be that way. Augustine, um, in his great confessions, describes handing over the keys of his memory this way. 
He's speaking to the Lord. He says, you have dwelt in my memory ever since I learned to know you. And it is there that I find you when I remember and delight in you. He says this, you have honored my memory by making it your dwelling place. I love that phrase, you've honored my memory by making it your dwelling place. So if God dwells in memory, then our past are not our past rather is not fixed. It's not finished. Our past, even what is gone and irreversible to us can be converted. Now, what is this, right? Bringing up memory, bringing all this stuff about identity up. What does it have to do with being in Christ? What does this have to relate to, to our identity as Christians? And the simple answer is it has everything to do with being in Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul says this, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. We have been buried with Christ, the apostle says, dropped into the events of Good Friday and Easter. In other words, what he's saying by being united to Christ is that Jesus' own history, right? That history 2,000 years ago on that hill outside of Jerusalem and in that little garden tomb, Jesus' history becomes my past, becomes your past. And so I'm no longer permitted to think of myself exclusively in terms of my past, exclusively in terms of the life that I lived back then. My past has been broken open, as it were, and united joined to the past of Jesus Christ. And as formative as those events were on me, whether they were good or bad or indifferent, they are not the only thing or even the main thing that makes me who I am anymore, that makes you who you are anymore. I've been united to Christ. You have been united to Christ. And now what makes us who we are is not our own past, It's not the things that happened to us. It's not the things that we did. But it's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is now our past, right? That is what defines us. So Christ's death was not merely representative, meaning that he suffers in our place. It's also incorporative, meaning that we take part in it. You have been... Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, you have been buried with him, right? And then you were raised up with him there in those events. So I don't look upon the cross and the empty tomb as events outside me, right? Back then in history, apart from me. They are instead, the scripture says, events that we participated in. You were buried with him, and you were raised with him because you're united to him. So in some mysterious sense, nevertheless, in a very real way, we were there. If we've confessed Christ as Lord and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the dead, 
The scripture says, you were there. You died and you rose. So, listen, I no longer have this thing called my past, right? My memory. It's been invaded by Christ. His past, his memory are now the only things that I recognize. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Ground zero for everything I'm talking about. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul is broken up, cracked open as an autonomous individual. It's no longer Paul alone. It's Paul and Christ in him. Christ's presence washes over Paul's entire person. And he can no longer think of his identity in merely singular terms. There is no Paul without Christ. That's his, that's his reality now. Hence, his memory is no longer his. Paul and his past are gone. The things that were gained to me, I count them as lost so that I might gain Christ. That's gone, and now he says, past tense, my, my past, your past, I have been crucified with Christ. So I asked you earlier um, who you are. Here is your answer. Your identity is irreversibly bound up with Christ. You have no identity apart from Him. One way the Scriptures picture our union with Christ is through human marriage. The two shall become one flesh, the Genesis account says. Henceforth, there is no separate I, right? It's only I and my beloved. The two shall become one flesh. And drawing upon this, the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 6, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So you are no longer permitted to identify yourself apart from the Lord, apart from Christ. There, there just isn't any more I. It's just not me. It's, it's, it's me, it's Alex and Christ. And there's no separation between the two. And so as it pertains to our past, right, this thing that we need to be reconciled to, there's this radical element of discontinuity. In a certain respect, our individual pasts are gone. They're crucified. And all that remains is Christ. So we're no longer permitted to look back on our lives and identify with our former story, whatever it may be, good or bad or indifferent. Our memory now is draped in this central truth. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's the first and last word of our existence. But in tandem with this discontinuity, there is also continuity. If our pasts were simply wiped away, we would have no identity left. Our memory cannot be deleted across the board and us remain who we are. So whether we're reconciled to it or not, the fact is that our, we are our memory. I am the recollection of this particular past, 
of this particular experience. And though my identity is merged or submerged into Christ, it's not blotted out. I still have my past. Paul refers to himself as Paul, who was a Jew, this, that, and the other. And of course, Christ, he rises from the grave as the same person who went into it, bearing the same scars in his resurrected body. He is new, unimaginably new, but at the same time, he's not an utterly different person. It's still Christ. And so to us, our history is not simply deleted by the cross, but it's redeemed and it's resurrected. So your past and all its brightness and in all its darkness is redeemed and made new. It's resurrected with Christ. Your whole person is redeemed, not simply some spiritual aspect of you. The events of Good Friday and Easter reach back even into the past, putting to death and bringing to life that which is trapped in time. So what this enables us to do, right, if you can view yourself as in Christ, if you can see that your past is merged with Christ's past, that the one thing that stands over all the events of your life is his death and resurrection, that that when this happens, what, what we're enabled to do is to go back into the deepest and darkest recesses of our memory and view them in an entirely different light, the light of the gospel, right? You can be freed from a debilitating past, recognizing that that's not who you are anymore. I've been crucified with Christ. And moreover, those debilitating memories are themselves redeemed. I have been raised with Christ. And so he leads us into those dark memories, and there he shines the light of his grace, our Lord does. Our history is bound to his. So I just want to leave you with, uh, in this regard, a, a exercise, a practice to do to maybe work this out in your own life. And that's by going to those memories, right? Particularly the ones, I was trying to do this last night. My daughter's coming and suddenly I can't sleep now. Um, but, um, uh, right. <laughs> uh, it's all preparation. But um, those moments right in the past and, and go there with this in mind, that I'm in Christ. Um, It's quite challenging, but what I want to encourage you to do is look upon who you were, what you did, and what was done to you, and say unequivocally, I have been crucified with Christ. And repeat those words over and over again until your memory and your heart is transformed. And then turn from them and look into the future and say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You have a new future and a new present because you have been put to death, rather because your past has been put to death and raised to life with Christ. So we're united to him, and therefore our past is completely changed, completely changed. Now, I want to move from the past to the present. I mentioned a couple weeks ago this strange image that the Apostle Paul uses to convey our union with Christ, and that's childbirth. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. My children, with whom I am in labor again until Christ is formed in you. Put simply, Paul here is saying that he labors like a mother. 
that Christ might be formed in the Galatians. That's kind of a confusing picture, but the point is essentially, Christ has been implanted with us, and we are carrying him to maturity till he is formed in us. Our lives from henceforth are the unfolding of Christ's life within ours, right? Until Christ is formed in you. So genuine maturity, and I've been saying this for the past couple weeks, is not that we become the best version of ourselves. Genuine maturity is becoming like Christ, who we have been united to in his death and resurrection. So we're seeing now how our union with Christ affects our present. There's the old formula as uh, there's the old formula uh, that Christ has become like us, that we might become like him. He took the old me, my sin and condemnation, and he gave me himself in its place. The matter now is not becoming a better me. We've tried that project, and it's just too small a goal. It's becoming like him growing up into Christ and Him growing up into me. In sum, the reason that we're united to Christ, right? The reason that we're joined to Him is that we might be conformed into His image. That His life might become manifest in ours. So what is His image? What is it exactly that God wants us to grow up into? Well, it's less about suddenly acting a different way or taking on a new set of practices. Growing up into Christ, being shaped into His image, is more about growing up into our relationship with the Father through Christ. Because what defines Christ, the Son of God, more than anything else, is His relationship to the Father. It's the molten core of His identity, and now, because we're in Him, it's ours. If we are to grow up into Christ, what it means is that we're growing up into this new relationship that we have with the Father. It means to be a son in the Son of God. Check this out in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. He's, Paul says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So a give and take is at the center of this passage. God sends his son to take, namely, to take our nature, born of a woman, and to take our sin, born under the law. And in its place, he gives that we might receive the adoption as sons. So the Son of God does the giving and the taking. He takes what is ours, and He gives us what is His. And what He gives us, quite literally, is His relationship to the Father, is His sonship. He is the Father's eternal Son by nature, and we are made His sons through adoption. Yet up to this point, our passage is dealing merely in legal terms. Our adoption to the Father through the Spirit is a legal fact, but not yet a relational fact or an experiential one. That comes next, Galatians 4, 6. 
Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into, his, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Our legal status, adopted into the family of God, becomes a relational reality through the Spirit who causes us to cry, Abba. Now, Abba, as many of you know, is an untranslated Aramaic term meaning father or dad or even papa. It denotes intimacy and security and confidence. And it comes, and this is the reason why it's untranslated, because it comes straight from Jesus' lips. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was struggling to reconcile himself to his destiny, he cried, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. So do you see, right, what it means then to be in Christ? It means nothing less than to inhabit the very same relationship that the Son shares with the Father. We don't have some independent access to God, some connection to Him apart from Christ, so that I come in my own name or in my own person. The only access that we have to the Father is through the Son, because we are in the Son. We've been adopted and made sons in Him. And so what the Spirit of the Son does is He comes to dwell in us, and He drops us into the middle of this father-son relationship. So to sum up, Christ takes our broken humanity and he gives us his relationship to the Father and his Spirit by whom he relates to the Father. Our Lord causes his own words, Abba, Father, to well up from within our hearts and to pour forth from us. He rises from the dead And he tells Mary Magdalene, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. So here then is the measure of what it means to be conformed into the image of Christ. It means to relate to the father as he does. The mark of human maturity is essentially imitating the son's relationship, the son's prayer to the father. We grow up, in other words, when we learn to speak to God as Christ does, repeating his words after him. Rowan Williams says in his book, Being Christians, for the Christian to pray before all else is to let Jesus' prayer happen in you. We begin by expressing the confidence that we stand where Jesus stands, and we can say what Jesus says. That's what it means to be in Christ. Jesus praying in us. It sounds incredible, but it's right on the money. Prayer, this relationship that we have to the Father, is less about expressing our requests and desires, and it's more about entering a conversation that's already in play. Jesus is always speaking to the Father, as it were. And he invites us to join our faint voices into his mighty, eternal prayer. And as our words are caught up into his words, then we're praying, right? Then we're sharing in this conversation that simply is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Now, what I'm not saying is that our immediate concerns are wrong. On the contrary, God wants us to pour out our hearts before him. What I'm getting at, however, is that pouring our hearts out is not the only element of prayer. The other, perhaps more important element, is reforming our hearts. Prayer is where we grow up into the image of Christ. Prayer is where you are sanctified. Prayer is where you're made into his image. We leave behind the old self, bound up with its concerns and priorities, and we put on the new self, learning to desire what Christ desires. So a mature prayer life, in other words, is one that's beginning to sound more and more like how Jesus prays. We start off with our own words, expressing our desires, and we gradually grow up into Jesus' words, asking for the kind of things that he asks for and wanting the kind of things that he wants. So our prayer, right, is not so much about our plans of success, but about God's glory in his kingdom. Christ is being formed within us one prayer at a time. And maybe... That's why God allows us to struggle in prayer, to have our prayers unanswered. Perhaps in the process, I'm sure you've seen this in life or on TV, it's like a, it's like a snake rubbing against a rock, trying to shed that layer of skin, struggling. We're putting off the old self, and we're putting on Christ. If prayer is about the reformation of our hearts, the transformation of our desires, It's bound to be a difficult process. We are ever dying to ourselves and being reborn into the image of Christ. So, one practical word here. Say all your prayers, but live in the Lord's Prayer. Now, I'm not asking you to pray it verbatim if you're uncomfortable with that, but at least pray through it, because it's the Lord's Prayer, right? In the Lord's Prayer, what's expressed is what Jesus prays for. Those are his priorities in the world. Those are his words to the Father. Now, our words are great, and we want to say them all, but we want to slowly bring them into Jesus' words. You know, when I first got saved, I was 19, and I was consistently praying for, okay, I'm 19, mind you, saving myself some embarrassment. What I was consistently praying for was a wife. Like, it was like the whole youth group culture, and that's all I wanted, and that's all I prayed for. And it's not what I got for till I found Aaron. And that's all it was, and constantly. But there was a process of growing up. There's a process of leaving behind my desires, what I want, and learning, thy will be done, Lord. Uh, what I want is not this particular thing, but for your name to be hallowed, right? We're growing up into those and leaving behind just human concerns, A church father, Cyprian, he summed it up this way, and we'll move on to our last point. When we make our prayer, let the father recognize the words of his own son. May he who lives inside our heart also be in our voice. May he who lives inside our heart also be inside our voice. So, from past to present and now to future. Once Christ has been planted within us, there is nothing that can stop the takeover. He will grow within us 
to occupy the first place in everything. We will be made into his image from top to bottom. Our future, if you are in Christ, is nothing other than utter and total Christ-likeness. It's a process that's been set in motion that now cannot be stopped. It's quite literally only a matter of time. Christ in you, right? That's our present. The hope of glory. That's our future. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, it's a matter of give and take. And Christ still has more to give, namely his glory. He takes all this from us and he gives himself. And now at last, he gives his glory. That's the end process of all this maturity, all the hard and painful work in this life, is that we would become partakers in the glory of Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? Is it possible, think about it, to be conformed completely into Christ's image and that not also come with the honor and exaltation that accompany it? Uh, Colossians 3, right? You're currently seated at the right hand of God with Christ. The very throne of the universe. He says that's where you're located. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Creation will be complete when Christ presents us complete in him. The firstborn son by nature, and we adopted sons by grace, conformed into his image. Christ will be all in all. And see that God's work in our lives is past tense. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. God's works are eternal, without beginning or end. And our glorification in Christ, then, is as good as done. It is done. We're only down the road a bit from what it will be. So, I'll end here by saying this is the reminder that we need. Many of us are going through that difficult process of Christ-likeness. Whether it's struggling with difficult sin, whether it's struggling through a certain thing in your life, this is the reminder we need, which is always hard to keep before our eyes. We tread Jesus' path after him. It's the cross first and then the crown. And while it seems right that the cross is all there is, be assured the crown, the hope of glory, is coming. And all these things, right, this promise, we hold right now by faith. It's unseen, but it will become plain as day. Again, Colossians 3, our life is hidden with Christ in God. That's not evident. That's not obvious. It's not tangible to us. But when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. So my encouragement is simple. Through these words in Christ, or though these words in Christ seem too good to be true, they're not. Keep believing in them. Keep believing who you are in Christ, and very soon your faith will be rewarded. You will sleep, and you will awake to find yourself remade into the image of Christ.
the fullness of God. 